Well, good morning. He is risen. Amen. What a beautiful statement. What a, a rich and profound statement. It's so deep in just three simple words that he is risen. Uh, this is a, a truth that we have affirmed several times already this morning, that he is risen. This is a truth that I've heard at least corporately from most of you, I'm assuming, uh, that you, you've affirmed that Christ has risen. And I do hope that you truly believe that, that you know within yourselves that, that the Lord has risen. Uh, blessed writing from John in 1 John 5.13, he says that we can know that we have salvation. He says, I write these things to you who believe so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's a, an amazing truth that we can know and have certainty in the fact that we have life in Christ because he is risen. And whether we say this with enthusiasm, whether we say this with joy and excitement in our voice, or whether we can just kind of merely affirm it as a, a fact of history, I think it's important that we take some time to consider the implications of the resurrection of Christ. Yes, he has risen. He has risen indeed. But so what? What does that mean for us? What are the, the implications? What's the, the big deal with Jesus being risen? Why does that affect us? What does that tell us about Jesus? These are some of the things that I, I want to address with us this morning as we consider the implications of the resurrection of Christ. But first, let's open up in a, a word of prayer. God, we thank you that you have risen, that you are alive, that you are our king who has conquered the grave, that, that you love us enough to not only take on flesh and become a man, but to, to go to the cross and to suffer death, even death on a cross, for our sake, for our sin. God, we are so unworthy. We stand in awe of who you are. We stand uh, just humbly thankful and grateful for the fact that we serve a risen Savior. God, help us to to look to you this morning, that we would be, we would decrease, that you would increase, and you would be magnified in our hearts and our minds and our understandings, that we would know that you are, in fact, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, that you are on high, lifted up, that you are alive and reigning. And God, help us to not only know that as a, a fact of history, but that we would realize what that means for Christianity, what that means for, for you what that means for us as your followers, as those who are in Christ. God, I pray that we would know you in a saving, redemptive way, that we would be in a, a right relationship with you. And if that's not the case for some here, that you would draw them to yourself even now, that you would be working in their heart and uh, revealing to them the truth of your word. God, we pray that you would open up our eyes to your word, that we would see you in a, a greater light than even before we walked through the doors of this building this morning that once again you would be high and lifted up in our hearts and our minds in this place. God, we thank you that you have indeed risen. Amen. All right, well, it is not abnormal for us to talk about the resurrection of Christ around here. It's a pretty common thing for our church body to mention the resurrection, whether it's just in conversation here or out in the foyer, whether it's in our formal teaching or, or preaching from the pulpit, in our, our prayers or in our songs, it's very common for us to talk about the 
resurrection of Christ. It is a, a cornerstone of our faith. It is something that we, we hold dearly, that we embrace and we enjoy and we revel in. The phrase, he is risen, is not at all unfamiliar around here. It's something that we are quite familiar with. The fact that our king is risen, something that we're not just familiar with, but very often we are proud of. However, it has a tendency to become so commonplace as to become uh, just kind of numb in a sense that um, it, we, I fear, can oftentimes become numb to the fact that Jesus is in fact alive, that he has in fact risen. It can become just a, a sort of a, a pithy statement that we as Christians in, in Christian culture uh, will chant back and forth to each other on Resurrection Sunday, or we'll print on our t-shirts or cupcakes or what have you. It's just that you know, cute little pithy Christian phrase or saying that he is risen. And while we might not want to admit it out loud, and we certainly won't be proud of the fact that perhaps we've become numb to the, the richness of the truth of the fact that he is risen, I know that for myself, that concept of God taking on flesh and this man actually living out his life and laying down his life, actually dying, physically dying after being beaten and mocked and scourged and hung on a cross and pierced through with a spear, that it was verifiable that he was witnessed by even Roman soldiers who were, they were given the task of verifying his death. They could tell he actually went through rigor mortis. He actually went through lividity, the, the process of liver mortis, where your, your blood settles down and discolors your flesh. Jesus went through all these things. This man was wrapped up in, in cloths and pounds upon pounds of uh, fragrant fragrances and uh, myrrh, and he was placed into a tomb, and he was left there, presumed to be dead. And this was a, a verified fact of history. And it's become normal for us to say that he has risen, that he was in that state and he was risen. Much more normal than it would be for somebody who is just hearing these facts for the first time, that he actually died and he, he rose again. That is a, a shocking statement. That is mind-blowing. That is not normal, right? And yet, somehow, again, it, at least in my mind, it's become somewhat normalized to hear that there was a man who was once dead and now he's alive, because we repeat this on, on such common regularity that Yes, he is risen. And that is a, a glorious fact. I'm not um, trivializing that in, in any sense. I don't think that I've ever trivialized that in my mind. However, it doesn't have the same kind of shocking effect that, that it once did. And I think that's why it's so important that we take time to, to step back and to ask ourselves, okay, well, yes, he is, he is risen. We can affirm that. We can agree in that. However, what are the, the implications of that? What does that mean for, uh, for us Personally, how can we take that and uh, understand what that entails for our lives because of the fact that he is risen? But first, we have to understand what that teaches us about who Jesus is himself. What does the resurrection teach us about Jesus? And I think we have to start with the fact that his resurrection validates his death. The resurrection of Jesus validates his death. Not in the, the fact that he died, uh, Many people die, and they don't have to undergo a resurrection in order for that death to be valid, right? That is a, a valid death. 
but his death is validated by his resurrection in the sense that it is efficacious. The efficacy of his death is validated. What he came to accomplish in his death, the, the, the big word is propitiation, right? Don't, don't run away from that word. It just means a, a satisfactory payment that Jesus didn't just die a, a normal death, but he died a, a vicarious death. He died a death on our behalf. He came with the, the sole purpose of paying the price that you and I deserve to pay ourselves. We are all sinners before God. We have all lied and, and cheated and stolen. We are murderers at heart when we, we have hatred for our brother. We have lust within our hearts. And when we lust after others, Jesus equated that with committing adultery. We fail to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, souls, mind, and strength. We fall short of the standard that God has placed before us. And the, the fact that we fall short isn't just some minor thing that, that God is able to dismiss. He's not just able to sweep that under a rug. The penalty for sin, the wages of sin, is death. Eternal death. Separation from God. That's what we owe. That's what we deserve for our sin. And that's what Jesus came to accomplish, to, to pay that penalty that we owe. Again, vicariously. He was going to take that debt, that punishment, that payment that we owe upon himself. That's what he came to do. And his resurrection validates his vicarious death. The fact that he didn't just die a, a, a vain death, but he accomplished something in his death. Let's look together at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. 1 Peter 3, 18 says, for Christ also died for sins. That's why he came. He came to die for sins. Once for all, the just Jesus, for the unjust, Tyler, and, and you, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That is why Jesus came to die, a vicarious death. And that death had to be validated. Had Jesus not been resurrected from the dead, we would not be justified. We are justified. We are declared righteous because of his resurrection. His death verified and, and, or was verified and validated by his resurrection. In Romans 1, Paul talks about how uh, it was by his resurrection that Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God. His resurrection declared that he is who he said he was, that he had the power to overcome death, he wasn't just put in the ground and, and forgotten about. He was truly dead. He was buried, and yet he was raised again to, to life, and he remains living today. So the resurrection validates the death of Christ. And this, this next point, I know it's, it's deep and profound, but just hang with me. The resurrection of Christ proves that he's not dead, right? I, I know it's, it's deep, but it's important, right? His resurrection proves that he's not dead. And what that does is it sets him apart. It makes him different from anybody else. He is absolutely set apart. Again, that verse that I just quoted from Romans 1.4 says that by his resurrection, he was declared with power to be the Son of God. He has all power. There are many powerful, mighty men, many rich and wealthy, famous men who have died. They can't raise themselves again to life. Jesus was all-powerful. He is omnipotent, and he demonstrated that in his resurrection from the dead. Not just anybody can raise themselves from the dead. This is a divine act that is performed by God himself. Only God has the power to, to raise himself. 
Jesus in John 11 says that he is the resurrection and the life. He has life within himself. He has the power of resurrection within himself. Nobody can be raised apart from the power of Jesus. He is the resurrection and the life. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And starting in verse 22 through 24. Acts 2.22 says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. He's talking to eyewitnesses here. And he's saying, you guys know who Jesus is. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. It was not possible for death to hold Christ. Christ is omnipotent. He has power over death. There, there's no physical way for Jesus to remain dead because he is God, because he is omnipotent. The the passage there, Peter goes on to explain how David is dead. David, the, the mighty king of Israel, David, the great patriarch, he is in the ground. He says, we still have his tomb among us. We, it's right up the street. You want to go see David's grave? Let's go to the cemetery and we'll, we'll look at where David's buried. Jesus alone has the power over death. No other man has the power to, to raise himself from the dead. He points to David as an example. No other religious leader in all of history has died and risen again to new life as Christ has. Muhammad, still in the grave. Joseph Smith, he's, he's still dead and buried. Abraham and, and Moses and Paul the Apostle, they are all dead and buried and in the ground. And that is where they will remain, just in various forms of decomposition, just waiting because they don't have power to raise themselves from the dead. They're sitting there waiting until Jesus, the one who has raised himself from the dead, comes along and he raises them up again to eternal life, either to, uh, to resurrected glory or to eternal damnation. They are waiting to be resurrected because they don't have that power within themselves as Christ himself had. And yet, despite the fact that Jesus has this power within himself, despite the fact that Jesus' death validates his, his resurrection, validates his death, and that his resurrection sets him apart, uh, we still have a, a tendency to be often cavalier on this point. Yes, he is risen. What? How can we talk about our Lord in that way? This, this fact that Jesus is risen from the dead without breaking into song, without really having a, an understanding of the importance of the fact that he is risen. We should not be at all cavalier on this point. And yet, we, we seem to. We, we seem to kind of drift into that. We seem to become comfortable with the fact that Jesus is risen. You know, it's not been, except for in the last hundred years or so, that the automobile has been popularized. I think we, we often forget that only a hundred years that cars have been used by people in a, a normal everyday sense. Yeah, it's not been that long. It's only been the last century or so that air travel has really taken off, 
that uh, global communication has become instantaneous. And that's to say nothing of the, the development of the internet or of smartphones or of medical advancements, these things that we just kind of take for granted that we don't even really think about. Well, 100 years ago, that was a completely different world that we, that we would have lived in. And yet somehow these things that were at one point so very unthinkable have become to us commonplace, just simply woven into the, the fabric of our society. It's something that we take for granted, something that uh, we don't even give a, a second thought to. These once innovative products and uh, ways of life, we just take for granted. Our ever-advancing technology and our, our fast-paced lives, our constantly shrinking news cycles, we are just a, a quick, instant gratification type society to the point that we think that anything that's older than our the leftovers in our fridge is out of date that it's irrelevant somehow and yet we're all here this morning to remember a man who died 2000 years ago because though he died he isn't dead because he is still alive he is still relevant today jesus is more relevant to our world than the wright brothers or harrison ford he is more important in our lives than, uh, than Bill Gates or Steve Jobs, these men who seek to have this lasting effect on our, our world. They want to have a legacy. And Jesus is alive. That trumps all these other things that seem to just kind of corrupt our, our minds and our lives. And we're so lost in today. We don't even stop to think about the, the things that matter, the fact that a man has risen from the grave because we get caught up in just the, the normalness of life. And yet we have the, the privilege of coming here and learning about the one who is preeminent, the one who is above all these things out of all creation. He is the only one to have been raised from the dead, never to die again. He is the preeminent God that we serve. And he stands ready to intercede on our behalf because of his resurrection from the dead. So his resurrection validates his death. His resurrection sets him absolutely apart from anybody else in all creation. It, it verifies the fact that he is the Alpha and Omega, as Jeremy read for us this morning, that he is God on high. He is the Almighty. That is unique. That is different. What does the resurrection of Christ mean for us? Well, I want to turn to Philippians chapter 3 and look at four benefits of the resurrection and how the resurrection affects us in Philippians 3. And we'll look at verses 7 through 11 to discuss the benefits of the resurrection. Philippians 3, I'll read verses 7 and 8. It says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things... I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. As Joseph was reading for us before, uh, he read a little bit more than I asked him to read, and I'm thankful because it went back and it covered uh, Paul's boasting in his apostleship. He's defending himself before the, 
uh, these unbelievers or to these believers in Philippi uh, apart from unbelievers. And he's saying, look at the fact that I am truly an apostle. I was, I was circumcised the eighth day. Um, I, was, um, I have confidence in the flesh more than anybody else. I am of the nation of Israel. I'm a, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a, a Pharisee. Uh, as to Zeal, a persecutor of church righteousness in the law, he says that he was found blameless. And he says, all that, it's, it's nothing. I count it all lost compared to what? He says, compared to the value, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So because of the resurrection, because Jesus is alive, because he is Lord, we can have relationship with him. And, and Paul recognizes that. And he says, I, I put that up here. Everything else that, that I've done, everything else I've accomplished, you can look at my life, uh, it's all garbage. He says it's rubbish, it's dung. It's all trash compared to the value that he gets in this relationship with Jesus and knowing who Jesus is and, and what Jesus has done in his life. And for you and I, what Jesus has done in the life of a believer, in the life of a, a new creation, that he has taken us who were once alienated from Christ. We were far off and he has brought us near. He has made us whole who were once weak. We were once dead. We were enemies of God. By nature, we were children of wrath, even as the rest. And Jesus has made us his friend. Jesus has, has brought us near. He has welcomed us into his family. Luke 19.10 says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That was his purpose. That was why he came to this earth. That was why he humbled himself as a man and took on flesh, so that he could seek and save the lost. The, the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to be, not come to be served, but rather to serve. He knelt down. He was washing the feet of his disciples, the Lord on high, washing dirty, grimy feet of Judas, who was about to betray him. The Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He made himself low so that he could make us new, so that he could make, take the old, and the old has passed away, and behold, the, the new we are the, the new. He has taken, transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. I love how Paul puts it in Ephesians when he talks about how we have been adopted in Christ. That's just a, a beautiful thought that we were, again, once enemies. We are not by nature children of God. And Jesus says in John chapter 8, no, you are children of your father, the devil. That is our, our birthright. We are born not as children of God. We are creatures of God. He is our creator in that sense. But we need to be adopted as children of God. In John 1.12, it says that um, to those who believe in him, even to those who have called on his name, he has given them the right to become children of God. Again, those who were once enemies of God, those who were once children of the devil, have the right now to become children of God, not by any will of their own, not by anything that they've done themselves, but by the will of God, by what he has done in our lives to give us that ability to have this relationship with him. This relationship that Paul is boasting in saying, everything else is, is garbage. None of that matters except for I get to know Jesus. Jesus, who he says is his Lord. All this is loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. And if Jesus is dead, he can't be Lord of anybody. 
if Jesus is dead, there's no way that Paul can sit here and, and say, this is my Lord. Paul is resting in the fact that Jesus is risen, that he is alive. That is why he's able to have this relationship with Christ. Further, in verse 9, he goes on, he says um, that he, going back to verse 8, so he has this uh, surpassing value of knowing Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered loss of all things and count them all as rubbish or trash or dung so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul realizes he has no righteousness of his own. In Christ, because of the resurrection of Christ, he can have not only relationship with Christ, but he can have righteousness in Christ. This morning in our Sunday school class, we were talking about how we have no righteousness in ourselves, how we need Christ for our righteousness, that it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a man, because our natures are corrupt, because we have no righteousness in ourselves. Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of our righteousness, it's filthy rags. It's worthless to God. He doesn't want any of our righteousness because we have nothing to offer. We have no righteousness in and of ourselves. We need him and his righteousness. That's what Paul says that he gains here through knowing Jesus, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. If, if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. He died needlessly. We cannot work our way to him. We cannot earn our salvation with him. We cannot earn any kind of merit that will give us right standing before God. We need the righteousness of God, which is on the basis of faith, not on the basis of anything that we can do. We need his righteousness. Continuing on in verse 10, it says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So here, Paul is just adding blessing upon blessing that we see from the resurrection. Not only does he have this relationship with Christ because of his resurrection, not only does he have the, the righteousness of Christ, but here he says, because of Christ's resurrection, we too can have a, a resurrected hope, that we can be resurrected in him. We will have this resurrection ourselves. Back in Philippians 1.21, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I think that's another one of those verses that we just kind of flippantly say as, as Christians without even really thinking about it. What do you mean to, to die is gain? How can death be gain? Well, because in Christ, we have resurrected hope. We have resurrected life because he is not only raised himself, he is the firstborn from all creation to, to raise himself, never to die again. However, we will be raised too in his likeness. We will be made like him because of his resurrection. You and I who are in Christ, we can have resurrected lives as well. Uh, let's look at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. The same author, Paul here, says, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. You see the connection there? He was dead and buried and raised, and we too, because we are in him, we are given newness of life. 
verse 5. For if we become unified with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Again, this is against what seems normal, right? It is appointed unto man once to die. It, we're, we're dead. We, we go in the ground and that's all we can see, right? But if we are in Christ, we have resurrected hope. If we are in him, we can be raised to a, a living hope and a sure salvation. Uh, going down just a little bit at the end of this chapter in Philippians 3, Paul says in verse 20, that our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we have our, our citizenship. Not, not here on earth, not just uh, American or uh, Hispanic or, or Mexican, uh, not Hispanic, um, or Canadian or German or French or whatever. Our citizenship is in heaven, right? And he goes on, he says, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Again, we see the, the power of Christ mentioned here, that he is omnipotent. He is all-powerful to the point that he can take our, our broken, decrepit bodies and he will make them glorified. He will transform, transform them into likeness with his glory. We have a resurrected hope in Christ. And because of the resurrection, Titus 2.13 says that we can look expectantly toward the return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That he is, in fact, coming back. He is returning. Again, something he could not do if he had not raised from the dead. He is coming back for his saints to make us whole, to give us new bodies and make us whole in him. And all of these things should really cause us to rejoice. The fact that we have in Christ a relationship with God, that he has bridged that gap. He has tor torn that curtain from top to bottom, making a relationship with him uh, possible, which was once impossible. We had this, this veil in between ourselves and God. We had this sin that acted as a barrier. Jesus came and he tore that in two so we could have a relationship with him. He has given us his righteousness he has promised a, a future resurrection hope for those who are in Christ. And again, all of this should draw us to rejoice in him. We can rejoice in the resurrection of Christ because of all these benefits to us, because of who he is, because it declares the fact that he is God. That is why at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul starts off by saying, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. That's a, a command. He is telling us to rejoice in the Lord. He did the same thing back in chapter 2. He does it a couple times in chapter 4. In fact, he says that he rejoices in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. This is what we as Christians are called to do, to sing praise, to find joy in our God and the fact that he is alive. David says in Psalm 35, verse 9, that my body shall rejoice in the Lord. It shall exult in his salvation. A salvation that, once again, is dependent upon the resurrection of Christ. Once again, if, uh, if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. But it can't. He had to die, and he had to be raised again for our justification. He says again in Psalm 32, 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, 
all you upright in heart. This is a, a repeated command we find throughout all of Scripture, something we find multiple authors doing, rejoicing in who God is. This is what we as Christians are made to do, to, to shout His praise, to sing His glory. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. Amen. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Once again, the, the resurrection has massive implications, not only for who God is, but for who we are as Christians, for our, our lives now and for our future eternity with resurrected bodies. The, the resurrection gives us, again, a, a living hope and a sure salvation through adoption so we can have a relationship with him. We have an imputed righteousness from Christ, a righteousness that is not our own. We have a, a future hope and a resurrected body, and we have a, a joy within us, a, a contentment in him that drives us to worship him in whatever situation we find ourselves in. We can go to God with uh, a joy-filled heart, and we can rejoice and worship in who He is and who He has made us to be. This is how we ought to live our lives as Christians in light of the resurrected Christ. I know that, that some of you know what it is to, uh, to receive uh, an NED report from your doctor, a report that says you have no evidence of disease, that you were once terminal, you were once facing death, and later to receive a, a clean bill of health. And just as somebody who, who finds himself in this kind of situation, face to face with death, facing the, the reality of the fact that they might not wake up tomorrow, and yet they're given this, this new lease on life. They're given uh, a, a second chance, so to speak. They walk away triumphant with a new outlook on life. Those who were once dead, now finding themselves to be alive. And we can, as Christians, have the same hope because we were once dead in our trespasses and sin. And in Christ, we find ourselves alive. And we ought to be in awe of his grace and his loving compassion, who he is, because we have newness of life in him. We should be standing wide-eyed and mystified at, at who Jesus is and his love and his grace we ought to be in awe of the grace of God, of who he has made us to be. And rather than simply flippantly proclaiming that he is risen, we ought to uh, take a, a real joy in this, not have a kind of laissez-faire approach to our, our new life that we have in Christ, but rather we ought to be understanding that we have been transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and pleasing to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you again for your death, your perfect death, where you spilled your sinless blood for our sake, on our behalf, your death that was validated through your resurrection. God, we thank you that you are our King, you are our Lord, that you sit on your throne on high and you have all power and all authority because you are alive, because you have risen and you have given us the, the opportunity to, to have that relationship with you, that we can be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of our own, 
that is found in the law, but a righteousness that has been given to us from you, that you have made us new creatures, that you have taken your righteousness and imputed it to our account, that you have taken our sin upon yourselves, and you have made us into the righteousness of God. We are so unworthy. We stand in awe of who you are. We stand here amazed and thankful and grateful that you are alive and we can call you not only our our God and our King, but we can call you our friend and our Savior. God, we love you. We pray that you would be magnified in our lives. pray this in your name. Amen.